be of God's word. Let's turn together to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, our text is actually begins in the previous verse, chapter 2, verse 17. It's one of those places in our Bibles where the, the chapter makers, verse makers didn't help us. Uh, our text really does begin chapter 2, verse 17, extends to chapter 3, verse 5. As we continue in this series that we try to do every year, where we come to a particular place in the Bible to show how Christmas can be found, even in these places. And, and that makes sense, right? Because every place in the Bible ultimately tells us about Jesus, which means you can get to Christmas any place in the Bible. Uh, this year, we're actually looking at various texts in the Minor Prophets. And Parker Tennant last week kicked off our series so well by preaching from Haggai 2 and showing how, in fact, Jesus doesn't come in fire, uh, but it comes in the flesh. And it was a, a great opportunity for us to hope again in this Jesus who's come, not just in his first coming at Christmas time, but in his coming again in his second coming at the end of the age. Uh, this morning we come to this passage here in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2 in Malachi, to be reminded that, that there's great hope for us, and especially those of us whose skepticism perhaps has slid in a kind of, of cynicism, where we've guarded our own hearts to the hope that this season offers. If that's you this morning, if you wrestle with cynicism, God's word is especially for you. God has a word here in this passage to renew your hope. But in order for that to happen for us, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we do come to you this time to hear from you. We desire to hear the word of the Lord this morning. And so, Spirit, we pray, come. We pray that you would take Holy Scripture, open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts, that we might hear and see the very word of God, glorious riches in this portion of your gospel, where we desire to see Jesus. Grant us this grace, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old as in, as, and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So here over the last few years of teaching seminarians, I have come to a stunning realization, namely, I am getting increasingly old and hopelessly out of touch. And, and the way I've discovered this is, is the fact that my students, they just don't get Seinfeld references anymore. Which means, of course, I'm, I'm hopelessly old and crazily out of touch. I mean, it's a shame that, that when I bring up a Seinfeld reference, it's as though I'm talking about something in ancient history like Elvis or the Beatles or the Vietnam War. Like, that's way back there in the past. That's where Seinfeld has been placed, which is really a shame because, because in many ways, Seinfeld was a brilliant send-up of 1990s American culture. It's narcissism, it's sense of irony, even a sense of cynicism. Uh, there's this great bit at the, at, toward the end of a, of a 1991 episode of Seinfeld that was titled The Statue, where, where George Costanza, who's played by Jason Alexander, he, he observes that, that the entire experience of that particular episode has left him even more cynical, more bitter, and more jaded. To which Jerry asks him, really? And George replies, sure, why not? And it's funny because if you've watched this, so you know that, that in every episode, George Costanza is relentlessly cynical about life in this world. It's hard to imagine him being even more so. But why is he cynical? Well, that episode, The Statue, I think brilliantly tells you why. The episode starts with, with Jerry receiving a statue from his grandfather's estate. And this statue resembles one that George had when he was 10 years old and accidentally had broken. And so Jerry, in an effort to, to redeem the moment, to, to, to heal a place in George's past, agrees to give George the statue. But, but there was a problem. They misplaced the statue. Was it lost? Was it stolen? Pretty much the entire 30-minute episode is centers on trying to find the statue that Jerry is going to give to George. Finally, at the end of the episode, they find the statue. Jerry gives it to George, and he's holding this statue. And then Kramer comes along, and he slaps George on the back, which causes him to drop the statue, and which, of course, causes the statue to break. And he says in response, Ah! There's no justice in the world, which is exactly like life, isn't it? I mean, life gets our hopes up. Life gets our hopes up that there's this possibility of healing, possibility of redemption, only to to disappoint us over and again in the end. It feels as though there's just the same stupid thing that happens every single time. And and we identify with this feeling of, of cynicism, we, we even have a law for it, right? We call it Murphy's Law, that if something could go wrong, it will go wrong. And so we, we put armor over our hearts. The world has taught us by crushing our hopes over and over again, not, not to put too much stock in our expectations, not to raise our hopes too high, because if we're not careful, our hearts can be broken. And, and And because of that armor we put over our hearts, our tendency is to move from skepticism right into cynicism. I mean, after all, we've put our trust in heroes, whether athletes or coaches or or politicians or leaders, parents or spouses, pastors or missionaries. 
But what happens to them? Well, they falter and they fail and, and they fall as they inevitably must do, right? I mean, we overpromise and underdeliver. And, and all too often, our, our heroes, they disappoint us way too many times. And when we get disappointed too many times, we not only become skeptical whether, whether life can actually deliver on its promises, we actually become cynical. We, we, we put armor over our hearts. We enter into our careers, into marriage or parenting, or even service in the church, expecting great and glorious things. Many pastors have entered into this work with William Carey's words ringing in our ears, attempt great things for God, expect great things for God. And, but instead, whatever the sphere we enter into, we're, we're cruelly disappointed. We're abandoned, abused, ignored, ground down, and left cynical. And even this time of year, or, or especially in this time of year, with its promise of peace and joy and cheer, with, with gatherings of family and friends, with, with presents that we give and receive, this time of year, it promises to us this this kind of, kind of a joy, this kind of magic, this kind of hope. That's what this time of year promises, but it can rarely, if ever, deliver on it. And when our promises, excuse me, when our hopes are dashed, and when the promises aren't kept, we're left with George Costanza. Is there no justice in this world? Why is life so unfair? Friend, if that's you this morning... If you're here and, and you're, you've slid through skepticism to a kind of cynicism where you've put armor around your heart and you say, I'm not, I'm not going to be taken in again. I'm not going to hope again. This passage is for you. It's a passage of, of good news, that there's hope for the cynic. And that's because, as a theologian, Dick Kyes once observed, Dick Kyes was, worked at Labrie and after Francis Schaeffer, Dick Kyes once observed that really every cynic is actually a disappointed idealist. In other words, you're hardwired to hope. God is, has, has said, hope is your superpower. He's, he's endued every one of you with hope. Which means that, that underneath the armor and underneath the calluses and underneath your self-protection is actually a, a, a man or a woman, a boy or girl that's actually still clinging to hope. And this passage tells you why that's smart, that there is Christmas hope for the cynical, even for those of us who have cynical hearts. I mean, one of the things you have to understand about Malachi's prophecy is that this prophecy is structured around six disputations. So Israel will say, thus and so, and God responds. And then Israel will say, thus and so, and God responds. The passage we read this morning is actually the fourth in the series of disputations. And, and, and the larger context of these disputations really connects us back to what Parker was talking about last week from Haggai. You see, Israel's returned from exile. They have, in fact, rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the wall. They've had these promises from Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, that when God brings them back to the land, then the Messiah would come. Their enemies would be dealt with. Righteousness and justice, redemption, it would all happen. And it was all supposed to be happening now. But was it happening? Was it happening in Malachi's time? No, not at all. Not at all. And so God's people were becoming cynical. 
Their expectations had been raised to a, a certain level, a certain place. They had been promised certain things. They felt like those things should be happening now. They weren't happening. In fact, instead of righteousness and justice and redemption, what they saw was evil all around them. And so they moved through their disappointment, through skepticism, to cynicism. And you see their, their cynicism in two ways. They're both in verse 17. You see what they say first. They say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. That's their first claim. Their, their, their first claim is that all these evildoers, God loves them. He delights in them. They're good in, their, in his sight. This is actually a, a deeply cynical statement, isn't it? Because we know that God, by definition, is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably holy. God is not only utterly transcendent as the Holy One, he's also utterly pure. In him is light, and there's no darkness in him at all, the New Testament will teach us. So, so for Israel, for God's people to say that this infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably Holy One delights in evil and in evil people was a ruthlessly cynical statement. Why did they say it? Well, they looked around them, and they said, God had said when we came back to the land, when we're brought back from exile and we rebuilt the temple, righteousness, justice, redemption. But instead, what do we see? We see evil, evil all around us. And yet God does nothing. Well, if God does nothing about the evil, then maybe, maybe he's okay with evil. Maybe God actually likes the evil. Maybe he actually delights in evil and in evil people. It's, it's profoundly cynical. But what's behind this? What's behind the, this heart of cynicism? It's actually the second thing they say here. You see it? Where is the God of justice? What was it that, that George Costanza said? What is it that we say? There isn't any justice in the world. Life isn't fair. If there was, if there was justice in the world, if life was fair, then the righteous would get what they deserved and the wicked would get what they deserved. I mean, if there was justice, then my faith and my effort would be rewarded. If there was justice, then our heroes wouldn't disappoint us. Our leaders wouldn't fail us and our families would fulfill us. If there was justice, then the promises and hopes and expectations of my life would actually be realized. Joy, love, peace, they wouldn't be simply words. If the God of justice actually would just simply come and straighten things out, and since he doesn't, he must not care. He must not care. And so why should I? Why should I care? Why should I hope about life in this world? Do you see how, do you see how Israel's cynical hearts have come to a place of protection? Of course, they're not alone. We do the same thing. I've just described some of you. You've had great hopes for life in this world. And, and yet... Though you've had these great hopes and expectations, they've been cruelly disappointed all along the way. And, and you've come to the place of saying, where is this God of justice? After all, I've kept my nose clean. I've tried to fly right. I've tried to follow in his way. And this is what I get? Really? It's understandable, isn't it? At some level. My hearts get cynical. But, but God doesn't give up on these people. 
This is what they say. How does God respond to their cynicism? God responds to their cynicism given in chapter 2 verse 17 by telling them he's going to come and fulfill all of his promises. They can center their hopes on the one who is the coming hero. This coming hero, the one they're actually looking for, he's going to come. That's what he says in chapter 3 verse 1. Do you see it? He says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So, so first, God promises to send a messenger. Well, who's the messenger? Right, that's what he says. Behold, I, I send my messenger. Who's, who's the messenger? But at most basic level, it's Malachi. Malachi's name actually means my messenger. If you were to look in he, in, at the original language here, behold, I send Malachi. That's what it says. Behold, I send my messenger. So Malachi is actually a representative that God is sending to do what? To prepare the way of the Lord. To prepare the way before me. You see, in the ancient Near Eastern world, when the king would come, he would send a messenger beforehand to go into the city, not just a herald that the king was coming, but to, to urge the city to make preparation. How would they make preparation? They would actually fill in all the potholes in the road, in the main road through the, through the city. They would actually smooth out the speed, speed bumps so that the way was smooth. We, we actually need a messenger to come to Memphis, don't we? Fill in the potholes or at least throw those cool steel plates down that we have throughout the city, right? But, but that's what he would do. The messenger would come and he would, the preparation that would be made was to, was to smooth out the, the rough places and level the high places so that the king, when he came, would come on a straight, flat road. And so, so God says, behold, I'm sending my messenger. First, it's Malachi. But we know from other scriptures, there's going to be another messenger to come. But, but Malachi comes and then the king will come. And here, the king is identified as who? The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming. So this Lord is coming to his throne room, to his temple, to the place of his rule. And he's identified as a messenger of the covenant or perhaps better, the messenger of the new covenant. So he's the Lord, but notice it's small caps here. So this is, this is one who is almighty, but he's distinguishable from Yahweh. He's identifiable with, but distinguishable from, and he comes to his temple to establish his rule. He's a hero. He's a messenger sent from God, a prophet, a priest, a king. He comes to rule for God. Who is this coming hero? Who is this one whose way is prepared? Well, he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. And God is saying here, justice is coming because I am coming. I'm coming as this one who is the messenger, the Messiah, coming to, to prepare my way, but then coming after him to establish my final justice. No more cynicism, in other words. No more skepticism. It's okay to hope 
Because God himself is coming in the person of this messenger of the covenant. He's coming to fulfill your longings. He's coming to fulfill your desires. And yet, when you actually read what Malachi says, we're not sure we want this guy to show up. We're not sure we want this messenger. I mean, what does chapter 3 verse 2 say? Look at it. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? I mean, that suggests that we may not want to come face to face with the messenger of the covenant. We may not want to come face to face with the Messiah. What is he coming to do? Two things. He's coming to cleanse. He's coming to judge. First cleansing. Verse, verses 2 to 4 speak to this. Uh, especially verse, uh, the second half of verse 2. For he is like a refiner's fire and like, a, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. In other words, justice is coming. Justice is coming. But it's coming to God's people. And it's coming by way of cleansing. God is going to cleanse his people. And he's going to... There's two images here that speak to cleansing. Fire and fuller soap. Now, fire, what's that about? Well, the images of, of taking gold or silver ingots and, and putting them through the fire so that the dross, the impurities, might be burned out. And as you come through the fire, as that gold and silver comes through the fire to the other side, it's pure silver and pure gold. The impurities have been cleansed out through the refiner's fire. Fuller's soap. What, what we have to understand is in the ancient Near Eastern world, they don't have... They didn't have soap like we have soap. This morning I used ivory soap when I took my shower, 99.44% pure, right? They, don't, they didn't have soap like ivory soap back in the day. What did they use? Well, our Bible's translated as fuller soap. It's really closer to lye that would actually be placed in the water. It was a cleansing agent that would be mixed with water, and then the clothes would be dipped in and beaten and scrubbed in order to make them clean so that both fire and fuller soap have to the same point as their imagery. Namely, the Messiah comes to cleanse his people. He, he comes to purify them. He comes to make them holy. And what will be the result? Well, their, their worship will be acceptable. Their worship will be acceptable because, because their priests will be clean and their offerings will be clean. Well, what, is that, what does that all mean? It means that ultimately God's people will, will be right and just. And holy and pure. God's people will be the way they ought to be because the Messiah has come. The Lord has come into his temple in order to cleanse his people. But this coming hero does something else. He comes not just to cleanse, but he also comes to judge. That's what verse 5 tells you. This justice that comes through by way of cleansing also comes by way of judging. Verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Notice, the justice that comes is for unrepentant sinners of all kinds. The Messiah, when he comes, will judge those who worship false gods, the sorcerers. He will come to judge those who are sexually immoral the adulterers. He will come to judge the frauds and the liars, those who swear falsely. 
He will come to judge those who oppress others, the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless. He will come to judge those who fail to maintain public social justice, those who thrust aside the sojourner. But but when the Messiah comes to judge these sins, he's ultimately judged the root of all these sins. What's the root of all the problems in our world? Well, the root of, of all of our sin and all of our sinning is actually at the end of the verse. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, a world of justice will be a world in which men and women are serious in their reverence and love for God. Because reverence and love for God are the only things that can actually satisfy our deepest longings. And they're the only things that can actually produce the world for which we long and hope. And, the, and, and this God who comes with, to judge is the one who ultimately brings his judgment to bear on our hearts. So that we will actually turn away from, from our sin and sinning and the injustice that resides within us. So that we might run and trust and fear and reverence and love for God. So that he might change us and transform us. Listen, that's the only hope for our world. The only hope for justice in our world is not to be found simply in, in those who march. And the only hope for justice in our world is not to be found merely in those who pass legislation. The, only, the hope for justice for our world is not to be found simply in, in the United States Supreme Court. Friends, the only hope we have for justice in our world is that we might come to fear and know and love the true and living God. That's the only hope. That's our only hope. And, and that comes ultimately... Through this Messiah who comes, this one who comes to his temple, this one whose way is prepared beforehand by a messenger who levels out the places, fills in the potholes, brings down the hills so that his way is straight. Friends, this, this hope that we have, it's, it's what we would call Christmas hope. Because Christmas hope ultimately is about one who comes to bring, to, to set his world to rights again, so that we might be just and right and holy and pure. Way back in 1971, when I was a small child, I, I still remember, in part because they showed it year after year after year, a commercial that came on just at this time of the year. It was a Coca-Cola commercial. You might remember it. Where, where there was a number of people, they were singing a song that was later recorded by the one-hit wonders, the New Seekers. And they were singing, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to hold it in my arms and keep it company. I'd like to see the world for once standing hand in hand and hear them echo through the hills for peace throughout the land. You see, that the longing that we have for peace throughout the land for life to be the way it ought to be, for our world to be the way it ought to be. It's rooted deep in our hearts, isn't it? It's rooted deep in our hearts. And though we try to cover ourselves up because of disappointment, because of cynicism, because of fear, we, we try, to, try to push our hopes away. What, what Malachi is telling us is that very secular hope that was sung all those years ago on that Coca-Cola television commercial that we, we remember and we remember and are remembering in this time of the year, it can only be found in this gospel that we declare to you, this good news that we give to you. Because the fact of the matter is, when we ask the question, where is the God of justice? 
the answer that Scripture gives is not only, behold, my messenger is coming, but rather the, the message that Scripture gives is, behold, my messenger has come. Because who was the messenger? Certainly it was Malachi. But we also know it was John the Baptist. We saw in Luke chapter 3, language this morning in our call to worship that echoes these very words from Malachi 3. But we also hear them elsewhere in the gospel accounts. In Mark chapter 1, Mark's gospel opens with, and it was written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so John the Baptist came to prepare the Lord's way, to, to fill in the potholes, to level out the smooth bumps, the, the speed bumps. And, and Jesus the Messiah came. He's the son of the Most High, born of the Virgin Mary. His birth is what we celebrate this time of, this, of the year, but, but he came to his own people and in fact came to the temple itself, remember? Matthew chapter 21, he comes to the temple, to his place of rule, his father's house. He drives out the money changers, and what does he say? He says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. But is this one who is the messenger of the new covenant, this one whose, whose way was prepared, when he came, did he come bringing fire? Did he come bringing fuller soap? Did he come to to burn out our impurities? Did he come to bring judgment upon his people? No, he does something completely different. This one who threatens fire comes in the flesh to bear his own judgment. Jesus endured the fire of God's wrath on the cross. All of your wrath, all of your curse, all of the judgment that belongs to you for all of your sin and all your sinning and all of the ways you failed to fear God was all poured out upon Jesus Christ. He took the fire of God's wrath upon himself. He was beaten like one thrust into lye and water, scrubbed, beaten, abused. Why? So that you might be cleansed. So that you might be cleansed, not through going through the fire, not through going through the fuller soap, but rather by receiving the forgiveness of God that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. The writer of the Hebrews puts it this way. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through uh, the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. That's how you can be clean. That's how you can begin again. That's how you can start afresh the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. And so if you're here this morning profoundly cynical about Christianity, profoundly cynical about life in this world, this is what God's word says to you. Throw away your armor. Lay down your arms. And allow God's Holy Spirit to enter into those places where you still are clinging to hope. And hear God, through his spirit, say to you, it's right to hope. It's right to trust. Because in Jesus Christ, you have one who endured the fire of the wrath of God, who shed his blood so that you might be forgiven, so that you might start over again, so that you might be made new. And friends, if, if you're made new, 
and, and your spouse is made new, and if your children are made new by the blood of Christ, and your extended family is made new, and that happens in this family, and this family, and this family, and it spreads throughout this church, and it spreads through other churches, and we all are not only being made new, but we're actually living in new ways, what's going to happen in our world? It's going to be more just, and more holy, and more right, and more pure. Because that's, that's what God's gospel is about. It's about this good news and the very power of God that comes through Jesus Christ, extending through all the world as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. And so let every heart prepare him room this morning. Prepare him room in your heart. Fill in the potholes. Level out the speed bumps so that Jesus might enter in. And so you might know joy the very joy of the world. Would you pray with me? O one who was rich beyond all splendor, who for our sakes became poor, we worship you and adore you as the one who comes as our true hero to restore our hope. Lord, I pray for those this morning who have lost hope. May they hear your word this morning. It was a word for them, the very word of God saying that it's right to hope again, to put their trust and hope and expectations in Jesus, who never disappoints us, who always clings to us. Lord, grant us this grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.